The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. If you would turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 5. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 5 this morning, giving attention to verses 12 through 16. Well, it hasn't been that long ago since we were in the year 2020, and I'm sure you have not forgotten that year. Have you? I think 2020 was one of those years that, uh, that all of us will remember for quite some time. Uh, it was the year in which I first heard the phrase social distancing, the idea that, uh, that we should navigate in such a way that we remain uh, no closer than six feet away from any other human being. Uh, you remember a year of no touching anyone? No hugging anyone, no shaking anybody's hand, a year of, of isolation, a year of, in some cases, quarantine, a year in which we lived like, like we've never lived before. Is that fair to say? A year in which we lived in a way that, 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 uh, that none of us found uh, enjoyable. What I think is interesting about that year and about living in isolation and living at a distance from people, spending all that time touching no one, being near to no one, <clears throat> is I think there's some effects to that that are going to last that maybe we won't even realize for generations. Because we underestimate how important it is to be near people, how important it is to be in community with others. We underestimate how important it is to interact with other people up close and personal. We underestimate severely how important it is to touch and to be touched by other people. We're not meant to live in isolation from everybody else. And I'm sure that just in that brief time period, it, it seemed like eternity when we were going through it, I imagine, but it really, in the big scope of life, it was a relatively short period of time. But I think you probably learned in that time that, that this isn't the way you want to live. This is, in fact, no way to live. It doesn't bring us happiness. It doesn't bring us joy. In fact, it brings all sorts of negative sorts of things into our world. It impacts us for the worse and not for the better. We are not meant to live in isolation from other people. And praise God that year's behind us, right? It's over. But can you imagine if you had to live like that forever? Can you imagine what it would be to live like that forever? To live at a distance from other people? To not ever be able to touch somebody or be touched by another? To have to keep everyone at a distance of six feet or more? And to look down the horizon of time and to see absolutely no hope on the horizon that anything would ever change? That's unimaginable to me at any time. It's even more unimaginable to me after living through 2020, what that would be like. But you and I are going to meet this morning in the Word of God a man who knew exactly what that was like, who knew precisely what that was like, because it was his everyday experience, and it had been his everyday experience for quite some time. And as he looked down the horizon of time into the future, 
he saw absolutely no hope that things would ever change. As we've been walking through Luke's gospel, we've been seeing him unveil to us the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his glory and all of his power. He's been showing us the power of Christ, and he's been showing us that Jesus Christ, the one who lived, the one who walked, the one who ministered, the one who did all the things that we know historically he did, is not just a man, he's not just a prophet, he is none other than the very Son of God in human flesh who's come to redeem all who put their faith and trust in him. He's been trying to show us that, and he's been showing us that by giving us sort of snapshots into the life of Jesus. And he's been building sort of a case in front of us for why the smartest thing any of us could ever do is to place our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we saw him present to us a uh, an event in the life of Christ, in the life of Peter, when he walks by uh, the Sea of Galilee and he engages Peter after teaching a crowd there out in Peter's boat that he commandeered to make a pulpit out of it. And he does this miraculous thing. He, he goes out of the middle of the, uh, takes, gets Peter to take him out to the middle of the lake and tells him to fish where he isn't supposed to fish, where he's not supposed to fish. And he lets down his nets and up comes this miraculous Guinness Book of World Records catch of, of, of St. Peter's fish. If you ever go to Israel and you go near the Sea of Galilee, you can eat St. Peter's fish. It's pretty good, but they serve it to you with a head on and they look at you the whole time. So if you're creeped out by that, you might not want to do it. But in showing us that, that, that snapshot into the life of Jesus, he's showing us Jesus' power to save. He wants us to understand that Christ is the all-powerful one, that he commands not only sickness and disease, but he commands the elements and he commands the fish. He commands all of creation. He simply speaks and whatever he says happens immediately. He is the all-powerful one. And he established for us the, the foundation of, of what Christian faith really is. Christian faith, as we established last week, is at its heart trust in the power of Jesus to save us. It's coming to him and saying, Lord Jesus, here's my life. You are the only one powerful enough to redeem me. And so I'm entrusting my life to you, fully trusting you from this day forward with everything because you're the one who has the power to save. Immediately, Luke though shifts the scene for us and he takes us to another time in another place a location unknown a time frame unknown but he means to show us something altogether different about Jesus this morning the issue in Luke sharing us this snapshot is not establishing the power of Christ to save although the power of Christ is on display what he really wants us to see this morning is the willingness of Christ Jesus to save the willingness of Jesus to save he answers for us the question what kind of people what kind of people did Jesus come to save and the answer is not what most people today would expect it is in fact quite the surprise so let's look to the text this morning verse 12 of chapter 5 the first part Luke simply records for us this he says, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Again, one of the cities is a very uh, uh, uncertain location. It's not clear what city or where. 
excuse me, we're not even sure where the location is. It's likely somewhere in the same region where he's been ministering there around the Sea of Galilee. But none of that is the critical issue. The critical issue is this man who comes up to Jesus. And he's not just any man. We're told that he's a man that's described simply this way. He's full of leprosy. Full of leprosy. What in the world does that mean? Well, the word translated leprosy in your Bibles there is a, a, a word that's used that goes back to the Old Testament. And it's a word that's used for a whole variety of different kinds of skin diseases, all of which could be described by this same term. Uh, one of which, perhaps the most well-known of which, is something that we now today call Hansen's disease. It's the most severe of the kinds of things that were being dealt with in the first century. But this term could encompass all sorts of things from lupus to psoriasis to ringworm to all, courts of, all, all sorts of uh, skin diseases and skin irritations could be lumped under and described by this word. But Luke wants us to understand that it wasn't any of those minor deals that we're dealing with on this particular day. It is, in fact, the deadly incurable form, at least incurable at the time, form of leprosy that we now call Hansen's disease. So he tells us this man was full of leprosy. He was full of it. He wants us to know it's this terrible disease that this man has. He doesn't just have a few lesions on his skin. He doesn't have just a few splotches on his body. This man has full-blown, advanced, terminal leprosy. I say, well, what is that? We don't deal with that today so much here. Well, it's a chronic infectious disease. At the time, it was incurable. I found this one definition of what leprosy is. Chronic, it's a chronic skin disease characterized by ulcerous eruptions and successive desquinations of dead skin. Now, I read that three times, and even on the third time, I didn't know what desquinations meant, so I had to look it up, and it really means skin peeling. So, I don't know why they didn't just say that, but that's one definition of it. A, a skin disease that's characterized by ulcerous eruptions and, and, and skin that begins to peel and, and pull away. According to the book of Le Leviticus, the characteristics uh, of this kind of a leprosy that we're dealing with here are things like bright white spots on patches on the skin and hair in those patches that turns white or depressions uh, of patches of skin that are below the surrounding skin. The existence of what the Old Testament calls, quote, quick raw flesh or the spreading of scabs or skull. We know a lot more about leprosy today than they knew in the first century for sure. We now know that leprosy is caused by a particular bacteria that I'll butcher the name of, but I'm going to give it my, my best here, Myo, excuse me, Mycobacterium leprae. It was discovered by a Norwegian scientist by the last name of Hansen, thus it's called Hansen's disease. Back in 1873, he discovered this bacteria that causes it, but it, it attacks the skin, it attacks the peripheral nerves, it attacks the mucous membranes, and it creates lesions on the skin that are, that are pretty ugly and pretty uh, uh, maiming to the body. It can, in fact, disfigure the face because it can cause the, the entire nose to collapse and the skin on the face to begin to fold. Sometimes it was called in ancient times even lion's disease because a person who was severely infected because of what it would do to their face could give the appearance of a, of a lion, the disfiguration that it would cause. Leprosy of this type leads to, um, uh, quite often in advanced stages, the loss of extremities, the loss of fingers, the loss of toes, the loss of uh, important pieces of the body. 
commonly it's thought that, that, that the disease itself actually is what rots away the extremities, but come to find out it's not the disease itself that actually rots away the, the extremities, the fingers and the toes and so much. The problem is that with leprosy in its advanced stages, it, it, it causes the victim to lose uh, all sensation in their fingers and toes and parts of their body. And it's amazing the kind of damage you can do to your body when you have no sensation. I got to reading about this this week and found some interesting stuff. One of the, the real problems with leprosy is when, when it's advanced, what happens is you lose the sense of pain. You lose the sense of pain. You and I think in terms of pain as something that we don't want. Can I get an amen, right? We don't want pain. When pain comes into our world, what's the first thing we want? We want it to immediately, hastily go away. Leave immediately, pain. We don't like pain. We don't want pain. But you and I don't realize the importance of pain. We don't understand the gift of pain. People who deal with leprosy understand the gift of pain. Because what happens when people have leprosy is they no longer feel pain in parts of their bodies. So they injure themselves in terrible ways and they do not know it. Philip Yancey spent some time with a doctor by the name of Paul Brand, who was a doctor, a Christian doctor, who specialized in treating leprosy in various parts of the world. And so they traveled and they wrote a couple of books together on the, the subject of leprosy. And, and he says this, he says, on a book tour in England, I met an engineer from South Africa who showed me his scars. See this, he said, pulling up his trouser leg to reveal a prosthetic foot. Quote, I poured hot water in a basin to wash my feet. I couldn't judge the temperature because of my insensitivity, and the water was far too hot. I literally boiled my feet. Next, he rolled up his shirt sleeve to show me a large scar over near his elbow. And he said, and I got this one when a rat came in the night and gnawed on my arm. I didn't feel anything, so I didn't wake up. Can you imagine that kind of a misery? A disease that causes you to, to lose the sensation of pain. And because of that, you have no idea when you're being injured, when your body is being wounded and destroyed, in fact. Reality is, pain isn't an enemy. Pain is a built-in protective system that God has designed for us to keep us from literally destroying ourselves. Dr. Paul Brand said this. He said, I thank God for pain. If I could give one thing to my patients, I'd give them pain. You don't appreciate pain until you experience a situation where you don't have it anymore. Without pain, we literally destroy ourselves. As lepers around the world throughout history well know. What an awful disease. An awful disease that attacks the body in such a way that the, the individual destroys their own self without even really understanding or knowing it. Beyond just sort of the physical uh, uh, awfulness of this disease, it was contagious and it was at the time incurable, so lepers were quarantined from society. If you were found to have leprosy, you were not allowed to live in any community with any other people. You had to wear torn clothes all the time so people could identify you from a distance. You were not allowed to have any human contact. Get this, you weren't allowed to come within six feet of any other individual, including your own family. 
If the wind was blowing, you weren't allowed to come within 150 feet of anyone else. The only, peop only people that you could be around were other lepers, and, and you could live with them or around them in a leper colony somewhere far outside, away from all the rest of civilization. And your only future was to live in such a condition until you miraculously got better or you died. Michael Wilcock talks about this man. He says this, this leper was an outcast. He had not simply lost his health. He had lost his family, his friends, his home, his livelihood. No one would, indeed no one was allowed to, associate with him at all. Ancient Jewish historian Josephus writes of, on leprosy. And he says of lepers, quote, they were in effect dead men. They were dead men. Ancient rabbis wrote of them and wrote of them as though they were, quote, the living dead. There seems to be, in recent years, in our culture, an obsession with zombie movies. I don't know, maybe you like that genre. But if you've seen anything like that, perhaps that's the way, at least in some relationship, to how people treated lepers. These were dead men walking. To heal one was literally to raise the dead. If that isn't enough, if it isn't enough to have the physical problem of leprosy, if it isn't enough to be quarantined from all the rest of civilization, there's misery upon misery to anybody who had leprosy because not only all of those things were true, but they were also ceremonially unclean. That means that everybody saw them as defiled. They were unable to participate in any sort of religious or social activity whatsoever. You can go back to Leviticus chapter 13 and 14 in your Old Testament and you can read all about it if you want all the gory details. In fact, in the teaching of the, of the rabbis of the first century, touching a leper was second only to touching a dead body as far as how it defiled you. In fact, one rabbi even advocated throwing rocks at them to keep them away. There's a leper, let's chuck a rock at him to keep him away. If you were a leper, you had to walk around, and if there were people within eyeshot of you, you had to yell, unclean, unclean, everywhere you went, so people would know to stay away from you. Leviticus chapter 13, here's just a snippet of it, verse 45 and following. He shall remain unclean, that's the leper, as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. Couldn't even get a haircut. He shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. Anything a leper touched became immediately defiled. If a leper entered the house, the house was now defiled. If he stood under a tree, anybody who passed along underneath that same tree was now defiled. What a horrible, miserable, pathetic, sad situation to be in. The sad reality is that today we know that leprosy is not nearly as, as contagious as it was thought. Somewhere between 90 and 95 percent of people have a natural immunity to the disease. They didn't know that back then. 
In fact, leprosy is still around. 2019, over 180,000 cases still in the world today of, of Hansen's disease. 180,000 people who still suffer from this. 114,000 or more just in India alone. And so this is the man who walks up to Jesus. He walks up to Jesus in this condition. In verse 12, we're told that when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. This man makes a confession to Jesus. If you will, you can make me clean. He came and he, he fell right in front of Jesus and he begged him. The fact that he even came is absolutely remarkable because the fact that he came is on a, a bottom line absolutely unlawful. What he did was break every law that a leper was supposed to keep. He threw his mask aside. He stopped yelling unclean. He violated social distancing and he ran right up to Jesus and he fell on his face right in front of him. It was unlawful. It was improper. It broke every, every civil code of civil society. But this man doesn't care. Because you know why? He's desperate. He's absolutely desperate. He throws caution to the wind. He intentionally violates the law. He doesn't care what other people think or say. He doesn't care what the legal authorities say. He doesn't care what the religious authorities around him do to him. He just sees in Jesus a sliver of hope, and he'll do anything he can to get to him. And so he runs to him. At this point in his life, he's tried everything else, right? He's already come to the conclusion that he can't cure himself. He's already come to the conclusion that there's no doctor and there's no priest that's living that can heal him. He already knows that he's going to die a miserable death unless, just maybe, there's something to this Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe he's different. Maybe. And so he comes to him, and he falls down in front of him, and he begs him, Lord, by the way, I won't spend time on this, but the term that he uses here, this title is not just a, a, a title of respect. He uses a word that is literally pregnant with the idea of worship and submission to Jesus as Lord, as master. He falls before him and in essence saying, I am, I am nothing. Everything of me is in front of you, belongs to you. Would you please help me? Now, we're told this happened in one of the cities, so it's probably likely that there were a lot of people around, and people would have been absolutely flabbergasted to see this. They would have been stunned beyond measure to see this leper come running up into a crowded area where there are people and fall in front of Jesus and say something to him like this would have been appalling. Mamas would have got a little billy and hugged them close and shaded their faces. Don't look. but he doesn't care. Lord, you can make me clean. What a tremendous statement of faith. This man has lived a miserable life and he's found no hope anywhere, but when he sees Jesus Christ, he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that this man is more than a man and that he absolutely has the power to heal him. There's no question in his mind about Jesus' ability to heal him. You can do it, Jesus. I know you can heal me. 
You can make me clean. There's no question in his mind if Jesus has the power to make him clean. There's no uncertainty in his statement. It's a statement of bold faith in the power of Jesus Christ. We don't know how much he knows about Jesus at this point. But he knows enough to believe he's from God. He knows enough to believe he can eradicate an incurable disease. He knows enough to believe that he can reverse his own death sentence. Lord, you can heal me. You can make me clean. But he begins with another statement. He says, if you will, if you will. Oh, he knows Jesus has the power to heal him. What he doesn't know is if Jesus has a will to heal him. He knows Jesus can, but he doesn't know if Jesus will. For who knows how long this man has literally been rejected by everybody. Everybody. Family, friends, neighbors, priests, rabbis, literally everyone has rejected this man. For who knows how long. Nobody will associate with him. What he does not know is will Jesus reject him too? Will he be like everybody else? Will he turn him away? Jesus, I know you can heal me. I know you can make me clean. What I don't know is if you will. He knows Jesus can. What he doesn't know is if he's beyond the grace of Jesus. He doesn't know if he's too far gone. He doesn't know if his corruption has run too deep for even Jesus. Lord, I know. I know if you want to, you can restore me. What I don't know is will you want to? Are you willing? Would, would someone like you condescend to someone like me? Would someone as perfect and divine and powerful as you be willing to heal someone as defiled and pathetic and lost as me? That's the question that's in this man's heart. Praise God he came to the right person, right? Jesus is not like anyone else. And that's what Luke wants us to see. Jesus Christ is not like anyone else that the world has ever seen. He's not like anyone in this leper's day. He's not like anyone in our day. He's not like anyone that's ever been or will ever be. He's one and only the Lord Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. So it's no surprise to us that he responds like nobody else. And we see here in full display his tremendous compassion. In verse 13, listen to what Luke tells us. And Jesus stretched out his hand, and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, gone. What a remarkable gesture of compassion from the Lord Jesus. Upon this wonderful request from this man, what, does the first, what is the first thing that he does? The first thing he does is not heal him. The 
first thing he does is to reach out his hand and to do what? He touches the man. He touches him. You could hardly imagine a more scandalous thing for somebody to do in that day and time. To reach out and touch somebody that's full of leprosy. No sane Jew would ever touch a leper. Never. You just didn't do it. It would have been repulsive to even imagine. For the crowd watching, they probably threw up a little bit in their mouths when he did it. It was horrible and disgusting. You would never imagine it. You might catch the disease. It was contagious. You, you would now be ceremonially unclean by just, barely, just by touching him. And yet Jesus touches the man. And he touches him before he heals him. And I think that's very intentional. I think he wants to very visibly identify with this man in his suffering before it's gone. I think he wants to make a statement to the man and he wants to make a statement to the crowd that's watching. Your disease is no barrier to intimacy with me. Your infection is not going to stop me from coming close to you and identifying with you and touching you. I'm with you. I'm for you. And I'm going to help you. It's the triumph of compassion over propriety and fear. He touches this man. Touch is so important. I got off on a little bit of a tangent this week, just sort of reading some, some, some things about how important it is to touch and to be touched. There's some pretty remarkable studies that have been done out there on, on touch and the importance of touch and what happens when people aren't able to touch other people. There was one study, I've forgotten the name of the, the doctor now, but she actually traveled <clears throat> to Romania to study children in, in orphanages in Romania who were severely underdeveloped. And she found that in some of these orphanages where there were 30, 40, 50 kids and only one or two adults to care for them, they, were, they never got an appropriate amount of touch, and because of that, they found a connection between this lack of touch and severe underdevelopment of just about every aspect of their humanity. Emotionally, physically, cognitively, they were affected by a lack of touch. There was one study that was done that found, that studied sports teams, <clears throat> for all you sports enthusiasts, get this, they found that basketball teams whose players touched each other the most won more games. Who would have known that? So if you're on a team and it's struggling, just go touch some people. Maybe it'll help. Studies found that team players who touch perform better. Teams who touch more win more games. Married people and other intimate couples feel closer and more assured if they frequently touch. There's a direct connection, research finds, between touching and a reduction in blood pressure. Studies show that waiters and waitresses who give a light tap on the shoulder receive higher tips. Again, that's free advice for you. When stressed out, touch has a calming effect. Touch does all sorts of things for us for the good. And a lack of touch does all sorts of things for the bad. Dr. Paul Brand said this, 
He said, I've sometimes wondered why Jesus so frequently touched the people he healed, many of whom have, have, must have been unattractive, obviously diseased, unsanitary, smelly. With his power, he could have waved a magic wand. In fact, a wand would have reached more people than a touch. He could have divided the crowd into affinity groups and organized his miracles, paralyzed people over there, feverish people over here, people with leprosy here, and raising his hand to heal each group efficiently en masse but he chose not to. Jesus' mission was not chiefly a crusade against disease, but rather a ministry to individual people, some of whom happened to have a disease. He wanted those people, one by one, to feel his love and his warmth and his full identification with them. Jesus knew he could not readily demonstrate love to a crowd, for love usually involves touching. I think that's brilliant and true. Can you imagine how this poor man must have felt when the Son of God reached out and touched him? Surely he did not expect this. In his wildest of wild dreams, he might have imagined that there was some sliver of hope that Jesus might in fact be willing to heal him, but never in a million years would he have imagined Jesus actually touching him in front of people. Again, Dr. Paul Brand says this. He says, I was examining the hands of a bright young man, trying to explain to him in my broken language that we could halt the progress of the disease and perhaps restore some movement to his hand. I expected him to smile in a response, but instead he began to shake with muffled sobs. Have I said something wrong? I asked my assistant in English. Did he understand me? She quizzed him in a spurt of his language and replied, No, doctor. He says, He's crying because you put your hand around his shoulder. Until he came here, no one has touched him for many years. Can you imagine? I've gone for years and years without feeling a human touch. And here the Lord Jesus touches you. I had to have felt similar to the man Dr. Brand described. For the first time in forever, someone didn't run away from this man. For the first time in a very long time, someone didn't turn away in disgust. For the first time in a very long time, somebody did not reject him. For the first time in forever, somebody reached out and touched him, reached out and identified with him, reached out in compassion and solidarity and friendship and broke the isolation of his life. Somebody bridged the huge gulf between, gulf between this man and everybody else. And the Lord Jesus did all of that with a touch. He simply says, your ESV says, I will. Another way of translating that would be, I am willing. Jesus, I, I know you have the power to heal me. What I don't know is if you're willing to do it. And Jesus touches the man and he simply says, I'm willing. I'm willing. And the main question on this man's mind is answered, answered in a moment. Is Jesus willing to heal a contaminated, diseased outcast? Yes, he is. 
Is Jesus willing to heal a walking dead man? Yes, he is. Is Jesus willing to heal an unclean nobody that everybody in the world has rejected? The resounding answer is absolutely yes, he is. He's willing. I have no idea what this man expected. But those had to be the most beautiful, exhilarating words he'd ever heard. I'm willing. Everyone else is so concerned about themselves that they stay away, but Jesus says, not me. Everybody else is, it might have written you off, but I'm not going to write you off. Everybody else is powerless to help you, but not me. I'm willing and I'll help. That's the Lord Jesus. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what sickness or disease you have. I don't care how advanced it is. I don't care how deformed your body is. I'm here and I'm willing. Let me tell you something, my friends. Nobody who ever comes to Jesus like that will ever be turned away. Nobody. Nobody who comes to Jesus like that will ever be turned away. They'll never be turned away because he's not willing. If somebody comes to Jesus and walks away, it won't be because he's not willing, it's because they're not willing. But anybody who comes to him like this man and falls on their face before him and says, Lord, I'm a mess. I am a broken, messed up individual. I cannot heal myself. This world has nothing to offer to help me. I think you're my only hope. And I know you have the power to make all of this right. What I don't know is if you're willing. Are you willing? Anybody who comes to Christ like that will hear the same words, I am willing, be clean. Whatever your disease whatever kind of rot has taken place in your soul. Nobody's ever turned away from Jesus because he's not willing. Psalm 102 verse 17 tells us something about the nature of God. Listen to what the psalmist writes. He regards the prayer of the destitute and he does not, what? Despise their prayer. For the rotten leper, they're despised by everybody, but not by God. He hears their prayers. Isaiah 55, verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And Jesus himself later said these words in John chapter 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And get this, say this with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. That's what this leper found on this particular day. He came to the right man. And the next words he heard were, be clean. Be clean. It's just one word in Greek. It's two in English. What was impossible for anybody else, Jesus accomplishes with one word. Be clean, be cleansed, leprosy, go away. And the language is important. He says be clean, not be healed. Because in the Old Testament, and even in in the, the first century in this leper's day, leprosy was associated publicly with sin. 
people assumed if you had leprosy that you had to be some sort of a filthy, rotten sinner for God to judge you with such a horrible disease. And so not only were people rejected because of the physical disease, but they were rejected because of the assumed spiritual rot inside of them as well. And what this man needed, more than he needed his body to be healed, is he needed his soul to be cleansed. And so Jesus says, okay, I'll take care of both of those problems right now. Be clean. Body and soul, be clean. And he made him immediately clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, left him. And just like every other healing that Jesus ever performed, it was immediate and it was complete. Immediate and complete. When people run around today trying to heal people in Jesus' name, they start telling you they have the gift of healing. You don't listen to a word they have to say unless every time they say that, what they do is they heal somebody immediately and completely. If they're doing anything less than that, then they're liars. And you should never listen to them. But there's another question that burns. Why did Jesus heal this man? Why? Why does he do it? Well, Mark chapter 1, verse 41, recounts the same story, and Mark tells us this, that he was moved with compassion, that he looked at this pitiful man, and he saw something that everybody else had forgotten. Underneath all that defilement of leprosy, there was a person in there, and people matter to Jesus. Everybody else looked at him and they just saw a rotten body and they saw flesh falling off the bones and they saw fingers and toes missing. All they saw was the defilement. When Jesus looked at that man, he saw the person on the inside and that person mattered to him. The suffering of that person mattered to him. It moved him with compassion and so he acted. Not because he had to, but because he, he wanted to because there was a person in there and that person mattered to him. Everybody else had treated this man as subhuman, worthless, but Jesus saw beyond the ugly, beyond the defilement. Let me ask you a question. Is that how you and I see people when we navigate in our lives? When we're walking around through the world and, and, and bumping shoulders with people wherever we go, is that how we look at people? When we see human beings, do we see them do we see beyond the outer shell? Do we see beyond the color of their skin? Whatever race they happen to be, whatever their job is or whatever their occupation, whatever their status is, whatever their level of beauty is, whatever their level of wealth is, whatever their level of morality happens to be that they're exercising their life, whatever their politics are of the day, do we, are we able to look beyond all of that stuff and say, there's a person in there and people matter to Jesus, so they ought to matter to me. Or do we spend time just like the people surrounding this leper, obsessed with what's on the outside, judging people, putting them into categories in our mind based on their beauty, based on their status, based on their wealth, based on whether they're Republican or Democrat, white or black. I want to suggest to you this. Your world and my world would be an awful lot better if we could learn to see people the way Jesus saw this leper. If we could see beyond all the rot on the outside. If we could see beyond the offensive behaviors. If we could see beyond whatever belief systems they've embraced that are foolish. 
and we could say, you know what? There's a person in there. And people matter to Jesus. And they ought to matter to me. Well, Jesus tells him in verse 14, go tell nobody, go show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing and as Moses commanded, for proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Well, Jesus, we've seen this before. He tells them, don't tell anybody. I don't even know how you tell somebody like that, don't tell anyone. How could you possibly not tell someone, right? How could you possibly not tell someone? And if you read Mark's account of the gospel, this story, he doesn't listen to Jesus. He tells everybody. And who could blame him, right? I mean, I can see that man singing zippity-doo-dah right down the street to anybody who'll listen, right? But he does tell him something important. And by the way, I just make a note about this. Jesus tells him that because here's the thing. Jesus isn't interested in a circus arena around him. He isn't interested in putting on a magic show for people. He isn't interested in becoming a sideshow entertainment for people to come watch miracles. He never wants to attract attention to himself based on the miracles themselves. He wants the focus to be the message of the gospel that transforms the heart. That's the point. And so he does everything in his power to minimize the impact that a miracle will have in just drawing people to come watch the show. And so he tells people like this man, don't spread this too far. But he does tell him to go and show himself to the priest. There's a couple reasons for that. I think Jesus wanted a priest to have to examine the man and had to say to him, you're healed. And I think Jesus wanted the priest to have to answer, ask the question, how did this happen? And I think Jesus wanted the priest to hear, well, it was Jesus of Nazareth. It's a testimony, Luke says, to them, proof to them. But the other thing is, if you read Leviticus, there's a whole ritual system that he had to go through, an eight-day ordeal of being declared no longer a leper. And that was really his ticket back into civilian life. You had to go to the priest and you had to go through this whole routine of sacrifices and so forth over eight days and at the end of that you were declared healed or clean from your leprosy and now you were able to re-engage with people and stop social distancing and stop quarantining and stop covering your lip. Does that all sound familiar? And stop yelling unclean. So Jesus sends him to the priest so this man can get back to his life. You know, all throughout the Bible... There's a vivid parallel between leprosy and sin. Sin isn't always the cause of leprosy. It isn't. We see that very clearly in the Bible. But there's a parallel between the two. One is a physical reality. The other is a spiritual reality. One has the the power to corrupt and defile and destroy the body. The other has the power to corrupt and defile and destroy the soul. Sin makes us unclean. Our depravity distorts the person that God made us to be and turns us into someone very different than what he made us to be. It defiles our attitudes. It defiles our actions. It defiles our motivation. It defiles our thoughts. It defiles our emotion. It corrupts our desires. It infects every single part of who we are. Sin, in fact, is like a living death. It just is invisible on the surface to everyone else. Ephesians 2 verse 5 speaks of sin 
and sinners. And it says, apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses. Just like this leper was a, a walking dead man physically, everybody born into this world a sinner is a walking dead man spiritually. And our sin, just like his leprosy, is incurable, at least humanly speaking. We're absolutely just as powerless to heal our own sin as that man was to heal his own leprosy. We cannot be good enough to deal with our own sin. We cannot add enough religion into our lives to fix it. We can't just try to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and be a better person because we can't be better people, really. Like this poor, pathetic leper. Just like him. Our only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. The only hope we have is Jesus. He died on a Roman cross to pay the price for our sin. He rose again, conquering sin, death, and the grave. And if you and I, if any man, if any woman will come to the Lord Jesus in the way that this leper came and fall before him and say, Lord Jesus, I am a rotten person. I have a disease that is killing me on the inside and I can do nothing about it. And I know you have the power to redeem me. I know you have the power to save me. What I just don't know is, am I too far gone? Will you do it? The Lord Jesus has never turned someone away who comes on those terms. Never. Maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling unworthy of Jesus. Like that leper, you, you know Jesus has the power to change you, but you, you wonder about his willingness. You look around here in a room like this, a church with, with church people, and it just looks like everybody else has their act together, but you know on the inside you don't have your act together. Hey, let me just burst a bubble for you right now. This isn't a church full of perfect people. It's not even a church full of good people, to be honest with you, myself included, people who have their act together. Far, far from it. When you look around this room, that's the last thing you see. We're a church full of broken people, people who need Jesus just as bad as you do, if not worse. In his introduction to the book of James and his paraphrase called The Message. Eugene Peterson writes this. He says, when, Christians, when Christian believers gather in churches, everything that can go wrong sooner or later does. Outsiders, on observing this, conclude that there's nothing to the religion business except perhaps business and dishonest business at that. But insiders see it differently. Just as a hospital collects the sick under one roof and labels them as such, the church collects sinners. Many of the people on the outside of the hospital are every bit as sick as the ones on the inside. But their illnesses are either undiagnosed or disguised. It's similar with sinners outside the church. So churches are not, as a rule, model communities of good behavior. They are rather places where human misbehavior is brought out into the open, faced, and dealt with. If you're here this morning, you're feeling unworthy of Jesus, and you seem to think that everybody around you has got it together, and you're an outsider who's just broken, you're so wrong. We're all broken. We're all infected with the same disease, and we all need the Lord Jesus just like you do. 
Here's what I do know this morning. If you'll come to Christ like that man did, you'll hear the same thing from him. I'm willing to be clean. Why won't you come to him this morning? He'll never turn you away. He'll never turn you away. Nobody is too far gone. Lord Jesus, we, we are amazed at you. We are amazed at who you are. We're amazed at your power to just speak a word and a disease that rotting, that's rotting a body just evaporates into thin air. Unquestionably so, so that everybody can see. Who can do that except God? The answer is no one. And we're amazed at not only your power, but your compassion. That the one who can speak a word and eradicate an incurable disease would look in the eyes of a rotting away leper outcast would reach out your hand and touch him. Would accept him, receive him, and would cleanse him. We're in awe of who you are, Lord Jesus. When we see you doing things like that, we see the gulf between us and you so vividly. How different you are from us. How differently you engage people than we do. And I pray, Lord, for the believers who are in this room who already know you as Lord and Savior, who've already come to you like this leper and found a cleansing of their soul and a forgiveness of their sin. I pray that they, along with myself, would just reflect on how we see people and how we interact with them this morning. Help us, Lord, to see them like you see them, to see beyond the outside shell, to see beyond their words and their actions that maybe are different or offensive to us, but to see inside they're a person who matters to you. To be the kind of people who don't reject others who are different, but reach out and embrace them. And Lord, I pray for that, that woman or that man or that young person who's here this morning who, who just feels unworthy of you who looks at themselves in the mirror and knows that their sin is dark and it's deep and they're embarrassed and ashamed. They know you have the power to heal them. They're just not convinced that you're willing. Would you open their eyes this morning to see that you'll receive them just like you received that poor man a couple thousand years ago? Would you draw them to yourself that they might feel your love and compassion in a real and personal way. Would you redeem them this morning? Heal them. Save them. And would you do it all for your glory? We pray it as such in Christ's name. Amen.